you have a Bible, please open with me to the Old Testament book of Nahum. The book, the prophecy of Nahum, it's a short prophecy, only three chapters. It's towards the end of the Old Testament in between the books of Micah and Habakkuk. I'll give you a moment to find your place there in Nahum chapter 1. And we will spend really just a few short weeks, probably five or six weeks, looking at this prophecy of the Lord. And, and thanks to the Lord, this is just a short prophecy because really it's going to be a, a little challenging to get through because it's the Lord telling of the destruction uh, of a great city. And the Lord is quite graphic in the detail that he gives and how he will bring down really the stronghold of the Assyrian Empire. So Nahum chapter 1, this is again a short prophecy, but it should really serve as a sobering reminder and a helpful encouragement to us as we seek to live in the last days. Uh, we, we studied that in Second Peter recently, that we are in the last days and the last days will be difficult. And, and this prophecy reminds us of the sovereign hand of God and bringing about His exact purposes. So our text today is Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and we want to consider the mighty refuge of Christ, the mighty refuge of Christ. Before we read this passage and look at this shelter that we have from God's wrath in the person and work of Christ, just a couple, a couple notes to kind of set the stage about this prophecy. Now, the Lord is writing and prophesying here to a mostly pagan people. The Nineveh was a pagan city. The Assyrians were a pagan people. And so the Lord writes to them, but they are also a people who had just as recently as about 100 years prior to this had experienced a national repentance. And so that's kind of the second note is that, that these are the people that Jonah went and proclaimed Christ to, proclaimed the judgment of God and the salvation of Christ. And they had repented just a hundred short years before this. And so that's kind of a backdrop to begin our study in Nahum. So let's read our text, Nahum 1, verses 1 through 8. If you will, please stand with me as we give attention to the Lord's Word. This is true and inerrant and inspired Scripture. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is God's Word. It says, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm is his way. And the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. And would you join me now, and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord God, great, mighty, awesome, glorious, holy, righteous, avenging, and full of wrath are you. You are exalted in the heavens and you do exactly as you please. You do exactly as you have ordained to bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, you are the sovereign ruler of all creation. You created the world and everything within it. And all things answer to you. All things are held together by the word of your power. And without your creation, nothing would have come into being that exists today. Lord, I pray as we come before your word that you would give us just a glimpse of your greatness. Lord, give us a, gr- a glimpse of your greatness so that we may stand in awe of you and worship you. Show us your greatness also, Lord, to humble us. To show us how small and frail and ig- insignificant we are. Lord, help us to see these truths that you outline in your word regarding your wrath and the punishment and condemnation that comes to sinners who refuse to repent. Lord, help us to see the greatness with which you reveal yourself through even the power of nature. Lord, I pray that we would have these softened and humbled hearts, Lord, to understand that we're but a speck of dust in comparison to your greatness. Really, Lord, not even a speck of dust. But Lord, what a great love with which you have loved us in Christ. Lord, that those of us who were far off have been brought near by the blood of his cross. We who were your enemies have been reconciled because the certificate of our debt was nailed to Christ on the cross. What a great shelter. What a great refuge. What a great Savior. Lord, as we look to the depths of your response to sin, before we look to the glorious good news of Christ, I pray that you would bring us low only to raise us up in Christ. 
Pray that our hearts and our minds would be ready and eager to receive your word. Pray that you would help us to take an honest assessment of ourselves and our lives. Lord, help us to look back even just over this past week and to see our sinfulness. To see that we have this flesh that still clings so tightly. And Lord, in that, show us how much we need Christ. Show us how much we need to be washed by the Savior and walking with the Savior. Lord, help us to be those who indeed take refuge in Him. Help us to find our life and our hope and our peace in Him. Lord, your word promises that you know those who take refuge in you. How thankful we are that you have known us from eternity past. That you've called us to be made alive together with Christ. You have justified us and counted us righteous because of his righteous life and sacrificial death. You now are in the process of sanctifying us as long as you tarry or as long as you leave us on this earth. You're conforming us to your Son we thank you that we strive towards the prize, the prize of the upward call that you have for us in Christ. Where we'll be glorified, we will be perfected, we will put off sin, we will put off sickness, we will put away every suffering, every tear will be wiped away from every eye, and we shall rejoice we'll see our Savior and we'll worship perfectly forevermore. Lord, may we look to this Christ today. May we have more of this Christ today. Pray, Lord, I ask, I beg that your Spirit would empower us as we look to your Word. Lord, for the strength of men fails so greatly as we seek to know and apply your truth. So would your spirit come and put strength in our effort? Would you give clarity to our feeble minds? Would you show us our sin? Would you break us and grant us repentance and conform us to Christ? Worthy, Lord, is the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive blessing and honor and power and glory and dominion forever and ever in His church. And we give Him all glory due His name. We pray in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. So this prophecy, as we begin Nahum chapter 1, it doesn't really need a lot of introduction on the front side because we really can get into to verse 1 and see the author and the audience and can kind of pick out the introductory things that we need to consider before running headlong into the text. 
This first section of God's pronouncement of judgment against Nineveh begins by showing us the greatness of God, shows us his glory, his power, his might, his wrath, his indignation towards sin. It shows us that he's a jealous and avenging God. But friends, in the same space, the Lord in his infinite wisdom shows us this horrifying picture of wrath but then he shows us the refuge and the shelter of Christ. He shows us that Christ is a protector and a defender to those who know him, to those whom he knows. For it's in eternity past that the Lord knew a people, that he placed his love and affection upon a people whom he would call out of the world. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. He breathes new life in us, makes us alive in Christ, and we're His, His people, His possession for His glory. As we consider these these two ideas of God's wrath and the saving power of Christ, dear friend, do you see that Christ is the avenger of the Father? It is the Son who pours out the wrath of the Father on those whom will go to hell. But it's also Christ who is the Redeemer. So he pours out the Father's wrath, and he bore the Father's wrath in our place. So to to narrow us down, to to kind of focus our time today in our minds, give you kind of a, a thesis or a purpose statement We can consider that to be delivered from the raging storm of God's wrath. That's what's pictured here. To be delivered from the raging storm of God's wrath, you must know Him through Christ. You must trust in Christ as your shelter from God's judgment. So we have this this raging storm of wrath. And to be delivered from that, you must know Christ. He must be your refuge, your shelter your Savior, and then you are delivered from the wrath that is to come. So we'll look at verse 1 for a little bit to kind of set up the the whole of this prophecy, but then we're going to look at the destructive power, the destructive, devastating might of God and the delivering refuge of Christ. So verse 1, we'll begin, we'll think about the debased people of Nineveh. The word starts here, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. Right off the bat, Nahum tells us who's the author and who's the audience. It's Nahum writing as a messenger of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. And again, that's what's interesting about this prophecy is that the Lord is writing and declaring the coming catastrophe of a pagan nation. At the very least, this is a mostly pagan people who have turned away from the Lord and who are oppressing the Lord's very people. Typically, the Lord deals directly with his people in Scripture. He he writes to his people. He identifies their sin. He calls them to repentance. He brings about that repentance. And then you see his grace and his mercy come to fruition. But here we see God writing to the pagans. Imagine Nahum standing up to this great Assyrian empire who effectively ruled that area of the world in the day, 
declaring to them, you will be destroyed. This ought to serve as a humbling reminder of the Lord's care for his people because the Lord's people were being oppressed by the Assyrian Empire, by the people of Nineveh. And this should remind us that the Lord will deliver his people from the hands of their enemies. Now, that may not happen in this life, but it will happen, as we saw last week in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood before the king and said, the Lord will deliver us from your hand. The Lord delivers his people. So this is the oracle of Nineveh. Oracle just means a a weighty, a heavy message. So it's a weighty and heavy word concerning these people. The Lord is telling them this, giving them this heavy message of their coming destruction. And again, we're familiar with this city. The the events of about 100 years prior to this, Jonah is called by the Lord to go to the people of Nineveh to tell them that their city will be destroyed if they don't repent. And you remember, what did Jonah do? He disobeyed the Lord. He was swallowed by a fish. He spent three days and three nights in the great deep. The fish spits him back out. Jonah still doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but he goes. He declares to the people in Jonah 3, verse 4, that in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happens is that the people repent. In God's grace, the people of Nineveh, a pagan people, heard the message of God's coming wrath, and they repent. And what's remarkable is that in Jonah 3.10, it says, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is genuine repentance. This was a genuine turning from sin because the Lord relented in his anger and his promise to overthrow and destroy the people. Just a hundred years or so before Nahum's writing, just a couple of generations that in itself is a hopeful message to us, is it not? You consider the Lord's grace in, in turning this wicked people from their sin and giving them at least that one generation of people who serve the Lord rather than the pagan idols and gods. If there's one thing, dear friends, that your mind ought to remember from the story of Jonah and Nineveh, it's the Lord's mercy and grace. His mercy and grace to Jonah, for Jonah just outright disobeyed a direct command of God. Yet when he repented, when he confessed, when he submitted himself to the Lord, the Lord forgave him and gave him another opportunity to go to that very people. But also consider the Lord's grace to the people of Nineveh. He was set. He sent Jonah to proclaim their coming destruction And when they repented, the Lord relented of his anger and of his destruction. Don't underestimate, dear friends, the Lord's willingness to forgive a repenter. Don't underestimate the Lord's willingness to forgive one who repents. To forgive and to restore. Dear friends, be a repenter. Repent often of your sins because the Lord is gracious and just. 
is righteous and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me tell you what, the the story of Nineveh, especially fast-forwarding this hundred years, should also give us a, a humbled view of the persistence required in salvation. Because this is, again, not a long period of time, just a couple of generations at the most, where the people went from calamity coming to repentance to the Lord withholding the calamity, and now they are right back in the position where the Lord is sending destruction and condemnation upon them. Their sinfulness had become quite great. We'll see it as, as we work through the prophecy and in the, in the way that the Lord describes His people and, and the judgment that He brings upon them. Their sin had become great, but the thing I think that we, we can latch on to the clearest is the Lord does not give any offer of, hey, if you repent, I will withhold this calamity again. No, the Lord is set. They have gone too far. The Lord will always forgive a repenter. But these people had gone so deep into their sin that the track, the the car was, was already on the road, the train was already on the track, and they were going to be destroyed by the Lord. So Nineveh, it was the capital city of Assyria in Nahum's day. Again, the Assyrian Empire kind of ruled the, the known, that area of the world at this time. And so this was a grand city situated in grand fashion upon the Tigris River. It was kind of the, the central hub of all the pagan idolatry of these people. The Reformation Study Bible says that Nineveh stands for Assyria as a whole. It conveys the idea of the evil forces arrayed against the people of God. So so when we see the destruction of Nineveh, what we're really seeing is the beginning of the fall of the Assyrian Empire. Those people who so strongly stood against the Lord and His people and oppressed His people. Dear friends, do you see that when the Lord turns against a nation, the only hope for any reprieve in that condemnation of God is full national repentance? We as the church can do our duty to be holy, to be set apart, to be called out. But once the Lord puts a nation on this path to destruction, there is but one hope, and that is national repentance. National repentance repentance. The Assyrians were known as a ruthless, wildly wicked and evil people. This was a day of warfare, and the Assyrians were known to mutilate and to torture their enemies to just great extremes. They they stood against the people of God in, in just this this great way. They stood against everyone. That's one thing that um, James Montgomery Boyce, he talked about how these two, the two great empires, Babylon and Assyria, Babylon was kind of known as the, the men of the world standing against God. And then the Assyrians were known as men taking their stand against men. It was just this brutal, evil, hard-hearted people that were willing to bring just utter suffering upon any who stood in their way. And we see even in 2 Kings 18 and 19 that these people were against the Lord's people. They surrounded Jerusalem and they were demanding its surrender. So 
This is the debased people of Nineveh. But let's also consider the delegated message of Nahum. The delegated message of Nahum. This is the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. We'll be brief here, but just a couple notes about our author. Not much is actually known about Nahum. We know his name means comfort or, or consolation, and those are good indicators of, of what this prophecy is about. There are some who think that maybe Nahum was not actually a name, but more just a summary of the prophecy. I think it's a person, but there are some who, who see that name and say, this is just the Lord bringing comfort and consolation to his people, because the Lord is writing about the bringing down of this oppressive empire. Now, it, it was not the Lord's people that would come and, and wage war against them, but it was the Lord bringing down those who hated and oppressed and mistreated his people. Some believe that the town of Capernaum was actually named after Nahum. Capernaum means the village of Nahum, the village of consolation, the village of of comfort, so it's possible that maybe he lived in that area. But regardless, we, we know that this is a word from the Lord. It was written probably somewhere in between 663 BC and 612 BC. We don't know exactly when. The, the text gives us some clues to, to hone in on those two dates, but there's kind of that 50 year window where Nahum was written to tell of the destruction of Nineveh because Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. So this is some 600 years before the coming of Christ. And it was a period of war, a period of unrest, a period where every nation basically was always on military conquest. That's why you just, as we go through this, you'll just see war picture after war picture after battle scene, and, and we see them in graphic detail because that's what the people knew in this day. These were not peaceful diplomatic advances, but brutal wars. You get a picture of, of how these wars kind of went in 2 Kings 19 verse 35, where the Assyrians are seeking to overtake Jerusalem, and the Lord shows up on the scene. The angel of the Lord, it says, went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. That's the scene. 185,000 people gathered to make war. And the angel of the Lord comes and strikes them all dead. It's a picture of, of what went on in that day, just battle after battle after battle. Nahum is a messenger and a delegate of the Lord. He comes as one writing the exact words that the Lord tells him, even to this pagan, obstinate, hard-hearted people. Friends, can we think about the comforting consolation of the rock and the anchor of the word of God for us today? That's what Nahum's message was. It was a comfort and a consolation, bringing the word of God to all the people of this day. The word of God is no less the same today. We ought to strive to be like Nahum, the people who give great warning of the coming condemnation of God, but also those who give the comforting balm of the hope of Jesus Christ. 
On one hand, you declare the wrath that is to come, and on the other, you declare the great hope that is found in Jesus Christ. So let's move into the body of the text now, verses 2 through 6, and we want to consider here the destructive might of God. So we've seen the debased people of Nineveh, the delegated message of Nahum, and now the destructive might of God. Verse 2, it says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea. He makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning anger of the Lord? So there's three components of God's wrath that we can see here. And we want to dive in here because we need to understand the weightiness of God's wrath and judgment before we can see the greatness of the refuge of Christ. Three components, the nature of God's wrath, an illustration of God's wrath, and then the outworking of God's wrath. Firstly, the nature of God's wrath. The, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. He's avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. He's slow to anger, great in power, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished might sound a bit paradoxical if you consider he's avenging and wrathful. He's a jealous God, but he is, as Nahum puts it, as the Lord puts it through Nahum, he is slow to anger. So how does that all work together? Jealous, avenging, wrathful, he will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he's slow to anger. Well, let's key in on the word jealous. Beginning of verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Think back to our time in the second commandment just a, a few weeks ago, Exodus chapter 20. The Lord says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This jealousy of the Lord is really how we make sense of the Lord being slow to anger, but also avenging and full of wrath, because the Lord is jealous for the glory of His name, because He is the only one worthy of glory. You know, we, we talked about that in depth, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, though, though there is good reason to think about the jealousy of the Lord. But we understand that He is the only being worthy of worship and honor and glory, and He is jealous for that. He stands for that. And so, yes, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished because doing so would harm the glory of his name. We should be marked by being people who are jealous for the glory of God. And we should zealously pursue to glorify him in all that we do in every way that we can. The 
Lord is jealous for his own glory, and we should be like God and be jealous likewise for his glory. So in a way, you could say that, that Nahum's prophecy begins with the glory and the holiness of God, because it begins with the Lord being jealous for the glory of his name. Now, Exodus 20 continues, the Lord says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And Nahum says the exact same thing. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He reserves wrath for his enemies. He takes vengeance upon his adversaries. Now, friends, do we understand it's not that the Lord is going about on an ego trip because he takes offense to someone who steals his glory. It's that the Lord sees himself as the only one worthy of glory, and so he will exact his vengeance. He will carry out his wrath, because it's in that vengeance, it's in that wrath, that God is glorified. It's in that that he receives praise. That is his character coming together perfectly, that he carries out wrath upon those who are not in Christ. Let's remember, we'll get to verse 7 as well, but thinking about Exodus 20, the second commandment, verse 6, the Lord concludes there that he shows loving kindness to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He shows loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. You know, I was just thinking this week about, about this, this view of God being a wrathful, avenging God, but also this gracious love. And it hit me as it's been a challenging week in our home with our children. It hit me that that should really describe us and mark us as parents that we do carry out justice with our children. We do so fairly and rightly as the moment calls for. But friends, we should always be seeking times to show grace. Now, so this is a little bit off topic, but I just couldn't help seeing this picture of God as the heavenly father teaching us how to be parents. Do you realize that grace is only grace if they understand wrath? You know, you can apply that beyond children. You can apply that to the whole world. Grace is only good news. The gospel is only good news if somebody sees what is to come on the other side of that coin. Your children don't understand when you give them grace when they disobey if they've never been punished. It must be fair. It must be appropriate. But for them to understand grace, for the world to understand grace... They've got to know the other side of the coin. And the Lord, of course, shows us that perfectly. Avenging will not leave the guilty unpunished, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. So, so that is the nature of God's wrath. But let's also think about an illustration, these pictures of, of God's wrath that we see from Nature, at the end of verse 3, and whirlwind and storm is his way. The clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. And indeed, the whole earth is upheaved by his 
presence. This is such a vivid picture of God's power, especially His power over nature. Again, you think, and whirlwind and storm are His way. Think about the, the powerful storms that we see, tornadoes or hurricanes, and think about the fact that God is over those. He moves these massive hurricanes exactly where he desires. He does exactly as he pleases with powerful tornadoes. Think about the flood of Noah. It was this catastrophic, cataclysmic storm and rain and flooding of the earth. The Lord was over it all. I was reading in Answers in Genesis, some of their Scientists say that after the flood, and this all makes sense with the weather, after the flood there would have been this, this period of just absolute upheaval, absolute turmoil in the weather with very cold temperatures and extremely strong storms. They talk about this thing that they called a hypercane, a hurricane on steroids, these hurricanes that would last weeks or months cover entire continents with winds up to 500 miles an hour, and they say that these were absolutely legitimate in that day. And the whirlwind and the storm is the way of God. He is over those. You you think about the devastating power of a storm, and you understand that all of those are just the dust beneath the Lord's feet. Does that humble you before the Lord to consider that great power? To consider the power that could be poured out in wrath against you for your sins? It should humble us. The text continues that he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Think about the people of God in the Exodus. The Lord rebuked the sea. He parted it so that his people could pass through on dry land, so he could make good on his promise to deliver them from the people of Egypt. He rebuked the sea. He didn't hope that the sea would part. He rebuked it. He parted it, and then when his people passed through and Pharaoh and his armies were in it, he collapsed it back in on them. That is God's power and his wrath shown in a picture of nature. God is the God of storms and and whirlwinds, and he dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. These great forests just become absolutely bare because the Lord does not send them, does not give them the nutrients that they need. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake because of him. The the world is upheaved because of his great power. The great earthquakes and, and all the great power that we see in the world is because of God and his almighty hand. This destructive, absolute, unmatched power of God in nature should remind us and should humble us as we consider the wrath that he will pour out upon sinners. So we've seen the nature and the illustration of his wrath, but then what about the outworking of his wrath when we consider his destructive might? Look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks 
are broken up by him. The Lord's indignation, his wrath, his anger is poured out like a fire that just scorches everything. Rocks, these solid, unbreakable items are just shattered by the Lord's power. The Lord's response to sin is mighty. And dear friend, it is unstoppable. Either it's stopped by Christ because it was taken by Christ, or you bear this ultimate power unleashed upon your soul for all eternity. None can stand. None can remain. None can resist in the day of the Lord's judgment. The power of the Lord that rebuked the Red Sea The power of the Lord that dries up these great forests. This is the power that will be on display over your soul if you do not come to Christ. So the destructive might of God, it's great. It's terrifying. It's awe-inspiring. Then look at verse 7. And let's come to the ultimate climax of this text and think about the delivering refuge of Christ. He says, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. Just stop there. Let that statement resonate as we As we hear all this and see this picture of the Lord's greatness and His might and His condemnation, hear the Lord declare, He is good. He's good at all times. He's good in all circumstances. Dear friend, do you realize that there has never been a moment that God was not good? It doesn't matter the suffering doesn't matter the hardship or the tribulation or the difficulty. God is good and he is on his throne. And he is working his plan. He is bringing about his purpose. The foremost plan and the foremost purpose is to glorify his name and to use us, his chosen vessels and instruments, as he works those purposes. God is Good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. What's the day of trouble? We just looked at it. The wrath and avenging indignation of God. He is good and he is a stronghold in that day. Psalm 25, 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Jeremiah 33, verse 11, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. For the Lord is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. How is the Lord good and a stronghold in the day of trouble? He instructs sinners in the way. His loving kindness is everlasting, and it endures forever. And in that love, He calls you out from your sin. He makes you alive together with Christ. He is our hiding place. Is our shelter. As you are a redeemed saint, you are hidden in Christ. The Lord knows those who take refuge in Him. 
This is the delivering refuge of Christ, that the Lord knows you. He's not acquainted with you. He doesn't just see your sin. He knows you. He has placed his eternal love upon you and called you out of the sin. He brought you out. He made you alive. He gave his son as the propitiation for your sins. He is your refuge. Consider Colossians 2, or Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is what? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is your hope. That is how Christ is your refuge, because you are hidden in him. When the Lord looks at you and he could see every sin you have ever committed, all the perversion, all the debased living, all the pride, all the arrogance, every sinful thing, he doesn't see it because he sees Christ. Because you are hidden in him. I wonder, do we proclaim the wrath of God so that we can proclaim the glorious good news of the shelter of Christ. Because again, if you don't see the wrath that is to come, you cannot rightly appreciate the refuge of Christ. Paul said in Romans 6 that you've died with Christ. You're united with him in the likeness of his death. And if you're like him in his death, you will certainly be like him in his resurrection. You're united to him. You're joined with him. You cannot, you will not be separated from Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be hidden in Christ means that we are fearless of divine wrath. But it also means that we are devoted to the one who was our shelter in the face of that divine wrath. You know, just a, a, simple, a simple picture for your mind. You think about a thunderstorm and you just think about a little tent, a, a little roof that shelters you from the torrential rain. That was Christ. He stood between you and Almighty God and He took the wrath that you deserve. He took your punishment. He took your place. And He gave you His righteousness. He lived a perfect life because you cannot and you need righteousness to be credited to your account. This is what it means to have Christ as your refuge and to be hidden in him. As those who are hidden in Christ, our duty, as Paul said in Colossians 3, is to set our minds on things above. To not be weighed down by the things of this world, to not set our gaze and our focus on the things that we can see, but look to the future hope, to the future kingdom. As we think about the sobering truth of God's wrath, we should see this hopeful truth of the shelter of Christ, and it should direct our minds Christward. Think about Hebrews 12 where it talks about laying aside the sin that entangles and clings and holds us back because we're called to run. Run 
with endurance. Dear friend, you may be tired. Your soul may be weary. Run with endurance. Look to the hope of the appearing of the glory of Christ. Set your mind on things above. Consider God's wrath and then glory in the Savior. Because what a shelter. What a refuge. Nahum closes this section in verse 8. He says, but with an overwhelming flood, the Lord will make complete end of its sight. Speaking of the city of Nineveh. He says, he will pursue his enemies into darkness. That is exactly what the Lord did. Well, we'll get into this as we go, but he just utterly destroyed Nineveh. The, the city was covered over for hundreds of years. Not, not, not found, not seen, not known. That is God's wrath on display. But friends, we're delivered in Christ. Be delivered, as we said at the beginning, to be delivered from the storm of God's wrath, you must take shelter in Christ. Believe in Him, call upon His name, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, flee from your sin, and place your hope in Christ, in Christ alone. Glory in the finished work of the cross. Come to Christ and find shelter. Dear friend, come to Christ and find eternal life. Do so by God's grace. Run with endurance by the power of the Holy Spirit and set your eyes and your desires upon the glory of God. For He and He alone is worthy. Let's pray.